Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Good morning. It's good to see you all on this almost blustery day. I want you to imagine something with me. I want to imagine, you'd imagine, that you are an FBI agent, and you are leading an elite team of other FBI agents. The year is 1993, and your team has discovered that a certain psychiatric hospital in San Diego has been committing insurance fraud. You've been investigating them for a number of months, and so you decide one day it's time to crack down, and you raid the hospital So your team spends the entire day going through the records of the hospital, you know, looking through medical records, looking for evidence. And after a full day, your team is famished. You have have worked up a tremendous appetite. So you make a phone call. You decide that you're going to call a local pizza place. Now, I'm going to share something with you that is an actual true account of what happened when an FBI agent did this. And this is true account. It's been proven by Snopes. Uh, it's been, uh, it's, so this is an accurate account of that phone call of you to the pizza place. Here we go. Hello, I would like to order 19 pizzas and 67 cans of soda. And where would you like them delivered? Well, we're over at the psychiatric hospital. The psychiatric hospital? That's right. I'm an FBI agent. You're an FBI agent? That's correct. Just about everybody here is. And you're at the psychiatric hospital? That's correct. And make sure you don't go through the front doors. We have them locked. You will have to go around to the back to the service entrance to deliver the pizzas. And you say you're all FBI agents? That's right. How soon can you have them here? Well, and everyone at the psychiatric hospital is an FBI agent? That's right. We've been here all day and we're starving. How are you going to pay for all of this? I have my checkbook right here. And you're all FBI agents? (laughs) That's right. Everyone here is an FBI agent. Can you remember to bring the pizzas and sodas to the service entrance in the rear? We have the front doors locked. I don't think so. (laughs) Click. True account. That actually happened. Sometimes it's really difficult to satisfy our appetites. And as it turns out today, this is exactly what we are going to be talking about. We are going to be talking about our appetites. And if you just joined us, we've been doing a teaching series called No Fool. And during this series, we've been discovering how we can chase down wisdom and we can leave folly far behind. So we've been looking at the fools of Proverbs and we're trying to learn wisdom from their folly. Because here's the thing, a wise person will learn from their own mistakes, but an even wiser person will learn from the mistakes of others. And today, the character we're going to be looking at is the stomach. Now, as it turns out, the stomach appears nowhere in the book of Proverbs. Instead, what I've chosen to do for this, uh, today's topic is to combine two characters into one. I'm combining the drunkard and I'm combining the sluggard. And as it turns out, both of them share the same root problem. We're going to discover that it's a problem with their appetites. So the stomach is a very fitting name for both the drunkard and the glutton. 
And interestingly enough, as it turns out, uh, in the Bible, the stomach is often used figuratively as a way to describe our appetites. So the stomach is sometimes used to describe uh, our hunger, our satisfaction, our contentment, and our consumption. And as we'll discover in Scripture, as well as in Proverbs, the drunkard and the sluggard are often very close companions of each other. Let me give you an example from the book of Proverbs. Here's what it says. Uh, Am I saying sluggard? Oh, thank you, Karen, for correcting that in me. Um, You're right. Uh, Drunkard and glutton. Um, Yes. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. So you can see right here, these two, the drunkard and the glutton, uh, are together. They're actually appearing in a number of other places in Scripture. Let me give you an example. Uh, You might remember that Jesus was falsely accused of being both a drunkard and a glutton, right? A companion of tax collectors and sinners. Uh, He kind of got lumped in with his people that he was hanging out with. He was guilty by association. Um, And so it's fitting that we talk about them together in one place today. So here's what I want to do. I want to, first of all, give us a bit of a portrait of the stomach. And then I want to address for us, what is the problem with the stomach, with the drunkard and glutton? And then finally, at the end, as with all the other weeks, we are going to find out how we can part ways from uh, these characters. And let me just say, as we walk through this and we talk about the stomach, the irony is not lost on me. As most of you are probably aware, if you've been journeying with us for the last number of years, um, I have developed a little bit of a dad bod as... Uh, <laughs> As, as we've been planting Cross Point Church. Um, and, and I have to say that it's not for lack of trying to stay fit. I mean, I work out four or five times a week. I, I can run five kilometers. I just like doing arm curls at the dinner table, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so, today's topic is as relevant to me as it is relevant to all of us. Well, let's look at a portrait of the drunkard and the glutton. Let me first start. Uh, who is the drunkard? Well, a drunkard is a person who drinks alcohol excessively and his, who is habitually drunk, hence the name drunkard. So, it's not that they drink, it's not even that they drink occasionally. Um, as it turns out, there are many cultures in the world where people have a glass of wine as a regular part of their dinner meal. That is not what scripture is addressing here, okay? The issue is that they drink excessively and they drink to the point of intoxication, hence the name drunkard. But then we have the glutton. And a glutton is a person who leads a lifestyle of overindulgence, okay? Now, a common misunderstanding that we have is a glutton is somebody who just overeats. That, uh, that doesn't really get at the essence of gluttony. Every time you overeat, you are not necessarily a glutton. As it turns out, there were actually times in the Old Testament where God brought the people of Israel together to feast. He commanded them to feast. He welcomed them to feast. Okay, it was a good thing. So that's not what a glutton is. A glutton is a person who leads a lifestyle of overindulgence. So it's somebody who's given themselves over to excessive living. And this includes an inordinate desire for food, for drink, and for pleasure. That is the true glutton that we find in Scripture. And there are a number of snapshots of the glutton in in the Bible. Uh, There's the rich man who ignored Lazarus. Uh, there are the sons of the priest Eli who helped themselves to the altar sacrifices. When they had more than enough food to eat, they decided to eat all the meat from the, from the altar. Uh, and of course, there is the prodigal son, among many other examples of gluttons in Scripture. Now, 
clearly in Scripture, the drunkard and, and the glutton have in common this one thing. It's this excessive and this overindulgent appetite. And we might wonder, I mean, what's, what's wrong with that? I mean, isn't that really what the good life is all about? Isn't the good life just having all you want, eating all you want, consuming all you want? What is the problem with the choices of the glutton and the drunkard? Well, I want to identify three of them today. The first problem is they ignore the consequences of this excessive way of life. And Proverbs really goes, goes to great lengths to kind of spell this out for us. So let's look at the drunkard first. Proverbs 20, verse 1 says this. It says, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So what it's saying is, you know, when you drink too much, you do hurtful things. You get into fights. I, I once had a friend tell me that he doesn't drink hard liquor anymore. When I asked him why, he said that he's allergic to it. Every time he drinks hard liquor, he breaks out into handcuffs. So there's a problem there. Proverbs 23 gives us actually a long list of problems associated with excessive drinking. Here's what it says. It says, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Well, those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. In other words, this is somebody who's been drinking a lot, okay? Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. And so, you, you, I mean, just in this one portion of the text, you see this long list of consequences. Woe, sorrow, strife, complaining. You make stupid assumptions. You th say things that you regret. And listen, let me just say this morning, I am the son of a drunkard. This is the world I lived in, I grew up in. I've seen firsthand the consequences of drunkenness. Not drink, but drunkenness. Drunkards hurt themselves, and drunkards hurt people. So, uh, let's talk about the glutton. And of course, glutton has their own source of woes. Let's look at Proverbs 23. We already looked at this scripture, we're going to look at it again. Uh, be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. So what happens to the glutton? Well, you, you lose energy, you lose motivation, uh, you become lazy, it empties your bank account, not to mention long-term effects, loss of mobility, diabetes, heart disease. There are all sorts of consequences for leading a gluttonous type of a lifestyle. But here's another consequence that Proverbs points to, and we don't often think about this one. The one who keeps the law is a son with understanding, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. Gluttons can bring shame. If you choose a gluttonous lifestyle, you can bring shame to those you love. And let me tell you, nothing stabs like shame. Nothing stings like shame. I know that to be true as the child of an alcoholic. There is shame that's involved in that. Now, it's important to keep in mind that Proverbs was written to Jewish people thousands of years ago, okay? This is a very patriarchal family where they have a, one of their Ten Commandments. One of our Ten Commandments is what? It's to honor your father and your mother. I mean, but what does the drunkard do, uh, the, the drunkard do and the glutton do? The glutton brings shame upon his father. He doesn't bring honor upon him. So all that to say is there are consequences when we give ourselves over to our appetites, when we live in this excessive sort of way. So that's the first thing that Proverbs identifies. But here's the second problem. The second problem, misalignment. 
you know, throughout this series, we, we, we talk about the wisdom of Proverbs and uh, how Proverbs is more than just good advice, okay? Uh, Proverbs never, ever makes the claim that it's just good advice. Proverbs says it's way more than that. It's much more than that. Instead, it teaches us that wisdom itself, the wisdom that we are seeking after in reading Proverbs, wisdom was woven into the very fabric and foundation of the universe. Wisdom existed before the creation itself, and God himself used wisdom to create the created order. And so wisdom is, is part of God's moral order for the universe. And when we walk in wisdom, what we're doing is we are, we are aligning ourselves with God's moral order in the universe. But the thing is, when we choose folly, when we act like one of the fools, when we play the fool, okay, we are essentially out of alignment with God's moral order. We've, we've veered off course, and we need a course correction. And I think most of us, as we've said at the beginning of this series, most of us want to be wise, right? We don't want to live as fools. We want to live as wise people. So why don't you turn to somebody beside you and just say, Mama didn't raise no fool. Give them a high five. Go ahead. Just, just do it. You want to be wise, right? Mama didn't raise no fool. Now, the stomach is someone who has chosen folly which means they are misaligned from God's good purposes and plans for their life. Now, how is that so? Where do, how does this misalignment work for the stomach? Well, it turns out that both food and drink actually have a place in God's moral universe. Now, let me tell you two ways that it's so. Um, first of all, food and drink, they are a gift to us. They are a gift you know, let's go back to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. When God created humanity, what did he say to them? He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And then he said, steward the earth. He gave them this commandment to take care of the earth, to build, to plant, to harvest, to create, to care for creation. Okay, this is called the cultural mandate by a lot of theologians. So first of all, he gave them this mandate, steward the earth, take care of it. And then right after that, right after the mandate, this is what he said to them. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for what? For food. So what this means is that, that food is a gift from God. And God has given us food for our nourishment, for our enjoyment, and for his glory. It is his gift to us. So as we steward the earth wisely, and this is important, as we steward the earth wisely, as we care for it, as we manage it, we can also receive the blessings of the earth. But this is something that's really, really important to note. And this is where we are misaligned and where we get off. You cannot separate stewardship from provision. They are tied together in the creation account. They are tied together in the mandate that God's given us. Yes, food is a gift for us, but yes, we are to steward the earth. So, first of all, they're a gift, but second of all, they are a blessing. They are a blessing. See, food and wine in themselves are not the enemy. Food and wine in themselves are, 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 are their gift, they're a blessing, but they're, they're, they're not something that uh, we should be afraid of or something we should think badly of. In fact, biblically, they represent God's blessing to his people. Let me give you some examples from Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 says this. It says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and ooh, with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting 
with wine. So here we go. Both food and wine are seen as a blessing that we receive from the Lord. Uh, and we actually find another great example in Proverbs chapter 9. In Proverbs chapter 9, there is this invitation from the author of Proverbs for us to walk in wisdom, to embrace wisdom, to have this, this intimate relationship with wisdom. And the way it does that is it, it personifies or it describes wisdom as this woman. And this woman stands over the city and she invites us to come in. And she invites us to come in for a feast. And she says, I have I've slaughtered my animals for food. I've mixed my wine and the feast is prepared. I mean, there is no greater illustration that, that wine and that food are symbolic of God's blessing for us. So food and wine aren't the problem. They're gifts and blessings we're supposed to receive with gladness. We're to enjoy them freely. We're to give God thanks for them. But the problem, the problem is one of misalignment. The problem is that the stomach, the drunkard and the glutton, are overindulgent. They consume more than is necessary. They're reckless and they're greedy with their appetites. I mean, and, and when they choose to live this way, ultimately, they're out of alignment with God's moral universe. And let me tell you two ways that that's so, okay? I want to get really specific here for a minute. On the one hand, when, when you are excessive and guided solely by your appetites, on the one hand, you're being wasteful. So, in other words, you're consuming more than you need. And when you're consuming more than you need, you are not appropriately stewarding the earth. Remember, you cannot separate provision from stewardship, right? So, you're just having a heavy dose of the provision, but you're doing nothing about stewardship. You're being wasteful. On the other hand, they are hoarding. They're hoarding. So they're taking more than they need and they're not sharing it, which means they're not being generous, which means that they're not meeting the needs of those people who are around them, which means that they're not caring for the poor, and which means that they're not stewarding the creation, but they're also not stewarding the relationships of the people around them. So these are the two ways that this misalignment takes place for the stomach, for those who are guided by their appetites. And let me just say, you know what, sometimes, sometimes we can see the, this glimpses of this misalignment in our own lives. You know, a garage full of stuff that's gathering dust. Vegetables rotting in the bottom of refrigerators. Useless junk that I buy and then just throw out a couple days later. Gorging on delicious meals and then posting pictures of them all over the internet, okay? And I'm all the while ignoring the poor. You know, it's, it's worth reflecting sometimes on how our consumptive practices could be misaligned from God's moral order in the universe. And can I just say this? This is a particularly poignant topic after a week of global climate strikes. As believers in Christ, we have a reason to be concerned about how we are stewarding God's creation. A far greater reason than a 16-year-old girl yelling at us from across the pond. And this is not a statement about whether or not to build a pipeline. This is not a statement about what political party you should vote for. I choose to be nonpartisan in my preaching. I'm not talking about the how of environmentalism. I'm talking about the why of environmentalism. Friends, we have a better why. We know who created this world and all that is in it. 
And he has given us a responsibility to steward it well. So we know the mandate he's given us for creation. We must care for the planet. We have a better why. Now, we have a lot of other whys, and we have a lot of other things that are important. But this should be important to us. And I don't know the how. I'm not here to tell you the how. But we can't ignore the why and throw stones at somebody else who's on another side of the party or somebody else's edge, you know, and, and miss the entire point. It's the why. So, little digression there. Let's look at the third problem. The greatest problem, the root problem, is that the stomach has disordered loves. Let me look at a scripture. Proverbs 21, verse 17. Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. See, the real problem of the stomach is that he loves pleasure too much. His loves are disordered. What is the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself, right? But the stomach is not loving himself. He's not loving others. He's not loving God. He's loving his pleasures above all other things. So he has disordered loves. They're in the wrong order, right? And God gave us everything for his enjoyment and for our glory. Food and drink, as we've already discovered, they are a gift and, and they are a blessing. So, so food is not the enemy. Drink is not the enemy. And we can consume them with delight. And as we consume them, we're supposed to give thanks to God for all that he's given us and for all that he's done. The problem is when enjoyment leads to excess. And then excess eventually turns into reliance. And reliance continues. Reliance continues in our lives. It eventually becomes a rival God. Did you know that your appetites can become rival gods? They can become idols in your life. So a good thing can become uh, a God thing. And then when it becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. So when anything in our lives becomes ultimately more important to us than God, okay, it becomes an idol. And that idol is a rival for Christ's affection. You know, of course, food and drink are not the only rival gods we can have in our lives. There are so many things that can become an ultimate thing. Sex, money, power, a significant other, the dream of a significant other, your fitness, your body, your work, your children. You know, you might not struggle with gluttony or drunkenness, but you could have other rival gods in your life working beneath the surface for your affection, your heart's affection. But for your appetites, you know, the thing about your appetites is really interesting. When, when appetites become your rival God, Scripture is very clear. Christ gets dethroned in your life. See, it is actually impossible for two monarchs to sit on the throne of your heart. It really is. It can't happen. You cannot have two masters. It can't be both ways. And the Bible is actually really, really clear about this. I'm just going to read a couple Scriptures really quickly that dispel this out. The Apostle Paul is writing the church in Philippi. Here's what he says. He says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears... Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is what? Is their belly. In some translations, their stomach. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Feel the tension, the rivalry? Okay, here's another scripture. Romans 16, 18. It says, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but what? Their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. It is impossible to serve Christ fully and serve your appetites fully. And here's something else. 
when you come under the control of your appetites, in other words, where they become rival gods, they, 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 they become, go from excess to reliance to rival gods, right? When that happens, when you come under the control of your appetites, they can become an addiction. And all forms of addiction, all forms of addiction are rooted in idolatry. Alcohol becomes our source of confidence. Food becomes our emotional means of dealing with problems. So we medicate ourselves with them. They, they become our, our portable dopamine drip. And we, sometimes we look to them for worth and for, for happiness, and we look to them for meaning. That's what a rival God does in our lives. But the thing about rival gods is they never truly satisfy the deepest longings of our souls. See, the thing about our souls is our souls were designed for something far greater. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes says that God has set eternity into the hearts of people. It was Blaise Pascal, the famous mathematician. What did he say? He says that we have within each and every one of us this God-shaped vacuum. There's this vacuum in us that is so great, so enormous, that only God himself can actually fill it. Nothing on this earth can truly satisfy the deepest longings of our souls. I like how C.S. Lewis put it. Here's, here's what he said. He says, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires, or appetites, not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum as he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We settle for weak appetites of weak gods, and we ignore the strongest desire that's in us, the strong desire for something, or rather, someone. So, rival gods never satisfy. But not only that, rival gods eventually betray us. You know, the thing about rival gods is at first they seem like a good idea. At first they seem to give us what we want. But in the end, the thing about rival gods is they take, they take, they take. They steal, they kill, destroy, and eventually they enslave us. We're talking to you about Reynald III. He was a duke in Belgium about 500 years ago. The thing about Reynald is he was grossly overweight. He was a, a victim of his own appetites, led by his own appetites. And he was actually called by his Latin name. They gave it to him as his nickname, which was Crassus. They called him Crassus, and that was the Latin word for fat. Reynold was the younger brother, uh, had a younger brother named Edward. So Reynold was the, the real duke, and he had a younger brother. And one time, Reynold and Edward got in a big fight. Okay, They came to fists. It was a violent quarrel. And so Edward got so mad at his older brother Reynold that he led a revolt against him. And it turns out the revolt was successful. Edward captured Reynold, and he didn't kill him. Instead of killing him, he instead built a room around him in the castle. And the room had windows. The room had doors. And he said to his brother, if you want your kingdom back, if you want everything restored, you want to become duke again, all you have to do is leave the room. The windows were, were not locked. The doors were not barred. The problem was, is the doors were just a little bit smaller than normal. And his brother, Reynold, could not leave the room. And all Reynold needed to do was to walk out of the room. But he was simply too big to fit through them. And so he was a prisoner of his own appetites. And Edward knew Reynold. Like, he knew him really well. 
So every single day, he would send food to his room, feasts, delicacies, his favorite meals. And instead of losing weight, Reynold actually gained weight. He could have dieted his way to freedom, but instead he got bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, 10 years later, uh, Edward died in a, in a battle, um, and Reynold was able to leave. He was, he was given his freedom. Uh, the problem is he had, he had grown so large and his health had deteriorated so much that he himself died one year later. So he died a prisoner of his own appetites, never able to just walk out of the room. This is the thing about rival gods. is They, they seem so good at first, right? They never really satisfy. They betray us. And sometimes they even enslave us. How do we part ways from the glutton and the drunkard? I mean, how do we, how do we get away from and abandon these destructive habits in our lives? Well, let me suggest two ways. The first one is this, is to feast on Christ. The beginning of the solution is to actually rightly order your loves. To turn your affection away from your appetites and turn your appetites toward Christ. And, and this begins by repenting of the rival gods in our lives. And what is repentance? Repentance is making a 180-degree turn away from that which is killing us and towards the one who can give us life. See, here's the thing. Idols in our lives, they simply cannot be removed. Idols need to be replaced. If you take one idol of your life and, and remove it, another idol will simply rise up in its place. John Calvin said it well. He says the human heart is an idol factory. Okay, we are continually cranking out new types of idols, new forms of worship. Idols cannot merely be removed. They need to be replaced. And your affection for what is killing you needs to be replaced by an affection for the one who can give you life. Here's what John 6 verse 35 says. These are the words of Jesus today. And I want you to just hear them today. And I want you to just receive them today. Jesus said to them, and instead I want you to put your name in there. Jesus said to Rob. Jesus said to who? He says this to you. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and who believes in me shall never thirst. Let's just sit in that for a minute. Because he's saying it to you this morning. Jesus is the true bread from heaven. Jesus is the living water. This is who he is. And the thing about it is Jesus is a happy meal that we can supersize as much as we want. There is no uh, recommended serving size. You do not need a calorie tracker. You can eat all you want. You can go back for seconds and thirds and fourths. There is no end to Jesus, the bread of life and the living water. And this morning, he invites you to come. He invites you to dine. He invites you to eat and to drink. To feast with him. Jesus is inviting us into a living relationship with him. To pray to him. To worship him. To receive him. To sit in his presence. To bask in his life, love. To delight in the truth of his gospel. Jesus invites us to come and to feast. The psalmist reminds us, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
I wonder, have you tasted lately? Have you seen just how good our God is? So the first thing is to feast on Christ. Here's the second way that I would say today. It's to embrace self-control. Did you know that self-control is the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things, there is no law. In other words, they are completely in law, in line with God's moral law, His moral law in the universe. And the fruit of the Spirit is a, is a result of the Spirit's work in our lives. So we can pray to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, would you empower me? Would you enable me to live a life of self-control? And then after that, as you pray, exercise self-control. Even when it's difficult. Even when it's hard. Even when your appetite's inside of you, are saying, Ah, oh, no, I want. But to exercise self-control. As you do the work, God works in you and through you to accomplish His purpose. This is how it works. The Holy Spirit works in us as we walk with Him in obedience. Can today you trust the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, give me what I need to live with self-control today. Let me say this today. You do not have to be in bondage to your appetites. Unlike the Duke Reynold, you can walk out of that room today. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he demonstrated his victory. His victory over sin, over death, over the powers of evil. He demonstrated that on, through his resurrection and that his work on the cross was completed. So when you put your faith in Christ, he sets you free from the power of sin. You are dead to sin. You are alive in Christ. You no longer have to have sin being your master. The door to freedom for you as a follower of Jesus is wide open. It is wide open. Do you know that today? That Jesus has won this victory. Now, I will say this today, and I think this is really important. There, you might be here today, and you might have a significant addiction. It might be a hidden addiction. It might be a public addiction. I, I don't know. And, and I want to acknowledge today that there are physiological realities associated with your addiction. So I just want to say a couple of things to you today. Um, first thing I would say to you is, is, is you're not going to be able to break free from that addiction if you don't come clean. Nothing good grows in darkness. Nothing good grows in darkness. The only thing that grows in darkness are mushrooms and millipedes, and they usually grow on a pile of crap. Right? We know that to be true. Nothing good grows in darkness. Come clean. Come clean. I know it's hard. I know you're, you're going to feel regret, and you're going to feel shame and all that, but you know, if you don't come clean, you're going to feel it far worse down the road. It's better you come clean today. The second thing I would say to you is to get help. This is to get help. It might mean detox. It might mean rehab. It might mean prolonged counseling. It might mean surrounding yourself with a group of people who can lovingly help you walk this journey together, but, but to get help. Um, I don't want to ignore the physiological realities of it, particularly when it's to do with alcohol or long-term addictions. Um, yeah, I, I want to acknowledge that. And maybe just what I'm saying to you today is God's grace to you. Maybe today, uh, just by sharing this, is, is, is Jesus in his grace through his Holy Spirit beginning a work in you. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. You are free from the power of sin. You just have not walked in that reality and the Holy Spirit wants to do that. He wants to renew your mind, and He wants to change you. And it's going to be a long-term battle, but it is possible, and it can happen. But you've got to come clean, and you've got to get help. So get help.
and we'll help you get help because we love you, okay? So embrace self-control. Embrace self-control. Feast on Jesus. Let me end with this this morning. Do you know the prodigal son was a glutton? He was a glutton. He was led by his appetites. He had disordered loves. His heart was full of rival gods. You remember he went to his father, right? And he says, Father, I want my inheritance. He actually wanted a pre-inheritance, which in that day was a tremendous insult to your father because nobody gives pre-inheritance to their kids, right? So to go to his father and to say that is basically what he's saying is, Father, I'd rather have your money and I'd rather have you dead. Terrible thing to say to his dad. And when he got it all, when he got his inheritance, because the father graciously obliged and gave it to his son, when he got this inheritance, what did he do? Luke 15, verse 13. Here's what it says. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had. He took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. He ate it all away. He drank it all away. He, we know the rest of the story. I mean, he lost everything. He came to the end of himself. He was busted. He was broke. He was living in filth. He was at the bottom of the barrel. He was looking up. And he says, all I can do is I can go home and I can beg my father to take me on as a hired servant. I guess I'll just go home. And when he went home, what was the father's response to the prodigal son who was a glutton? He welcomed him. He loved him. He took him in. And he restored him. And you may be here today and you may be thinking, God does not care about me. You know, how can God care about me when I've been living this way? When am I doing these things? Let me just say this. This is what you can learn from the story. Our heavenly father loves gluttons. And he invites them to come home and to feast at his table. This is the story of the prodigal son. And this is the story for each and every one of us. What a great story. Let's pray together. And so, Father, for those today who are trapped by their appetites, to those today who um, have rival gods in our hearts, God, we say to you today, Lord Jesus, forgive us. We repent of those rival gods, and we cast them down with gladness and with joy because we know that there is something and someone better for us. And we delight to cast them down, and we delight to re. re Replace them with the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus, the bread of life. Jesus, the living water. We cast them down today. We repent. We run from them and we run to you. And Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, equip us to live with self-control. Equip us to align ourselves with your purposes and your plans in the universe. To be good stewards. To be sons and daughters of the King. So we trust you today. We bless you and we thank you. We pray these things in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? 
you could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.